about you, but I could have listened to a little more of Austin singing there, couldn't you? Yeah, I thought he did a great job. Um, please, yes. In the uh, program that you were given, I hope that you will just take a look at that and notice that uh, we have a new section that's in there um, that's called Volunteer of the Week, and you get a chance to meet some of the people that are serving every week in our church. And we've got uh, Sam Baggett there, and you can learn more about Sam. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe even if you have a chance, send Sam a note, or if you know him, just uh, say hi and just say thanks so much for serving us here at City Church. Let me say a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, as we come before you this morning, uh, we are mindful that there are people, um, you know, we're just mindful of people here at this church who have loved ones, family members, friends in, uh, in Florida that uh, are digging out from underneath the effect of a tragic hurricane. Lord, we pray for them, pray for friends and family members who are represented here, and comfort them. Mindful of the fact that there are things going on all over the world right now that feel frightening and dangerous. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you, know, you would remind us as a people that you are sovereign, that you are providential, that you are in control. And then we pray today that you would speak to us through your word, open our hearts, um, give us the ears to hear. And I um, pray that you would speak more deeply into people's hearts and minds than I ever can. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to read an excerpt uh, from a commencement speech that was given at Vassar University. And I want you to see if you can guess who was speaking. Don't shout it out if you know, but just see if you can guess. person says, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was lying in the ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We all know that life is ephemeral, but on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed up when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett is going to go out broke. Bill Gates is going to go out broke. Tom Hanks is going to go out broke. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors right now. We have the power to do great good for others, so I ask you to begin giving and to continue as you began. I think you'll find in the end that you got far more than you ever had and did more good than you ever dreamed. What pastor do you think gave that speech at Vassar University? That was the horror author Stephen King. Surprise you? It was after he was walking along the side of a road near his home in Maine and was hit by a van and um, had a long recovery, nearly died, had a long recovery after that. You surprised by that, by what he had to say? This morning we wrap up a series that we began a couple of weeks ago called Right on the Money. 
In the first week of the series, we talked about how to know if money is an idol for you. Last week, we talked about the power of money to blind us to the true state of our soul. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, pastor and author, speaking on that subject, uh, once wrote this, uh, pastor and author Tim Keller once wrote this. He said, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed, he says, hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Yeah, that's what we talked about last week, the power of money to blind us to the true state of our soul. This morning, though, as we close out this series, I'm operating off the assumption that there are a good many of us in the room this morning or who are listening to this podcast who genuinely want to be more giving, more generous with our financial resources than we are, which is not to say, by the way, that you aren't generous. You might be, by all objective measures, more generous right now on a percentage basis with your income than the average person. But I suspect that many of us would like to be characterized by an ever-increasing generosity. And do you know why I operate off of that assumption this morning? Do you know why? Because there is a cause and effect relationship between grace and generosity. I'll put it this way, the deeper your experience of the free grace of God, the more generous you long to be. The deeper your experience of the free grace of God, the more generous you long to be. You can't help it. You can't stop it. It's just the way grace works. Grace expands your heart, and it enlarges your vision, and you can't help but get swept up in it. Grace creates a roaring, rushing, overflowing river of desire to bless others. I was trying to think of a, of, a, of a phrase to describe the kind of generosity that grace inspires. And of course, the, you know, the phrase that a lot of people use, and it's an overworked uh, phrase, radical uh, generosity. Radical, it's overworked. I just happened to come across this article that I'd read some years earlier, and I'd filed away. It was an article published in the journal Neuroscience, which, trust me, I don't read on a regular basis. I don't even know how I came across this article. But it was about, uh, the article was about a 49-year-old man in Brazil who had suffered a stroke. And as with many stroke victims, he had experienced a remarkable personality change. And the doctors described the change as, I want you to listen to this phrase. They described this change as pathological generosity pathological generosity. He wouldn't stop giving money and gifts to people, some of whom he barely knew. And I realized that's the phrase that I was looking for. Pathological generosity. I think a lot of us would love to be pathologically generous. Usually the word pathological is used as an insult. At various times, I believe my wife has used it about me and not as a compliment. But pathological generosity is a fitting description of the effect that grace has on a person. It doesn't make sense to the average person. It seems crazy. 
I once worked, many, many years ago, I once worked for a missions organization whose founder had been so moved by the grace of God that every year he would set a new goal for how much of his money that he could give away. And by the time he died, he'd been giving away 90% of his income for years. That's pathological generosity. The deeper that you experience the free grace of God, the more generous that you long to be. In the fourth century, uh, a guy by the name of Julian was the emperor of Rome. He was upset. Julian was upset that Christianity was spreading throughout the Roman Empire so fast that his own pagan religions were being displaced. And so he began to work like crazy to revive paganism, but he couldn't. And at one point, he wrote a letter to one of his friends who was a pagan priest in, in Galatia about why, as far as he understood, Christianity spread so much and was so popular. And this is what he said. He said, nothing has con contributed to the progress of these Christians as much as their charity. The impious Galileans, that's how they referred to Christians back then as Galileans. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying their movement keeps expanding because these people are pathologically generous. They give not only to their own poor, but to our poor too. You know, over the nine plus years that City Church has been around, I've spoken to so many of you who have said that you've been deeply affected by the grace of God since you've been at City Church. And so I, I suspect that there are many of you who feel this roaring, rushing, overflowing river of desire to bless others with your generosity. Um, but something holds you back. Something holds you back. And it's not greed. Not, not really. In fact, I, I, I'll tell you something. I've never met a person at City Church that I ever walked away and thought, that person's greedy. Uh, never met a person like that. I, I, and I'll tell you, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like in other churches I've been in, I don't walk around thinking, you know, who's greedy, who's not. It's just not a thought that goes through my mind. But uh, there have been in other places, occasionally people that I've met, and I thought, mm, you know. Never a person here at City Church, I've never met a person here that I thought was greedy. But I do think there's something that, there is something else that holds some of you back maybe from the generosity that you would long to demonstrate. And it's that something else that I want to go after this morning. Would you find Numbers chapter 13 in your Bible this morning? Numbers uh, chapter 13, back in the Old Testament. So the way it goes is Genesis is the first book, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. And I want to I set the context uh, for this passage. Uh, Israel is a brand spanking new nation, right, right out of the box. God has just freed them from slavery in Egypt by a series of incredible miracles. But they are at this point just a nation of people wandering in the wilderness without a land. They don't, they don't have a homeland. Tonight, they are camped just outside the land that God has promised to give them freely. 
The desert moon this night is full, the air is crisp, but a thousand stars twinkle in the night sky. There is great anticipation in the camp. Jewish children stay up later tonight than they're normally allowed, squealing with glee while their parents celebrate, laughing and singing and dreaming out loud about what the next day will bring. Because tomorrow, tomorrow, the 12 spies sent by Israel's great leader Moses into the promised land will return with their report of the land that God has promised to deliver into Israel's hand. They're not a child who's been born into Israel that hasn't heard the story, how God promised to their forefather Abraham and then to Abraham's son Isaac and then to Abraham's grandson Jacob that he would give their descendants an amazing land of their own. And to this people recently freed from slavery in Egypt, the idea of land ownership seems almost too hard to believe. It will be hard to sleep tonight for everyone in Israel, man, woman, and child alike. Dawn arrives, and as the sun makes its sleepy ascent, the nation waits anxiously for the news. A watchman runs breathlessly into the camp to notify Moses and Aaron that he sees the spies in the distance. They make their way to the entrance of the camp to greet them and receive their report. And as the 12 chosen spies return, the people burst into thunderous applause and shouts of joy. Moses signals for quiet, and a representative from the spies steps forth and begins his report. Verse 27, Numbers chapter 13. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And one look, you know, one look at the abundant fruit sends the people of Israel into an explosion of of joy and, and applause. Husbands hug their wives. You know, tears stream down faces. Children marvel at their parents' excitement. But then comes verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities were fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the city and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. The men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Read into chapter 14. That night... All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
Oh, man, I tell you, I feel for Moses. I feel for Moses. I've had days in church leadership like this where you start the day with a sense of excitement and anticipation and like maybe you, you know, you go to prayer and you're like, Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being in ministry. And then before you even say amen, you get a phone call warning you that there's a group meeting tonight at someone's home plotting to have you fired. (laughs) I've had those days. And if you were to read on in the text, the day gets worse for Moses. The people not only want him fired, they're trying to organize a good old-fashioned stoning. And if God hadn't stepped in, they would have carried it out. You know that Moses had to be wondering, what just happened? And it's a great question. What did just happen here? What caused these people of promise to burst into such a knee-knocking buzz of of pessimism and, and, and hopelessness? Why did they so quickly cut and run and abandon their you know, their hopes and dreams and the better life that God graciously wanted to give them. Why? Now, now you might be thinking to yourself, you might be thinking, well, I mean, Jeff, those are fair questions, but what in the world does any of this have to do with with being right on the money? This passage doesn't even mention money anywhere. No, no, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't. But as I said a moment ago, There's something that holds some of you, maybe many of you back from responding to the grace of God through ever-increasing, pathological even, generosity. And one might ask the same question of you that we ask of this group of people. What's keeping you from giving expression to that impulse that is a result of experiencing the free grace of God? Well, what's holding Israel back from responding to God's free and gracious gift of land? What's holding them back? If you could summarize it in a word, what would the word be? It's fear, isn't it? It's fear. You heard it. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Can you hear it? Can you hear the fear? Here's what they're saying. If we respond to God's gracious gift of this land and go up and try to take possession, we will be destroyed. We will be cut off at the ankles. We will be wiped out. And isn't that what's holding some of you back from increasing levels of generosity? Isn't it fear of being wiped out? If I respond to this impulse of God's grace toward generosity, I might become pathologically generous and I will be wiped out financially and God won't be there to take care of me. Like Israel, we really don't believe that if we trusted God completely, He'd come through. It's fear. Fear. There are a couple of things that this text tells us about fear that I want to point out to you. And it actually comes through the minority report from Caleb and another one of the spies whose name was Joshua. Look at verse 6, chapter 14, verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, in other words, they were two of the 12 spies, tore their clothes... It's a sign of mourning in Greek. 
and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And what I want you to notice first is that we we learn here that fear is ultimately a form of rebellion against God. Fear is ultimately a form of rebellion against God. Caleb says, don't rebel against the Lord by being afraid of the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Now, I want to make sure that we make a, a distinction here between fear as an emotion and fear as an excuse to resist God's grace. Fear as an emotion isn't wrong in and of itself. That's a natural response to danger. Caleb wasn't saying, don't feel fear. Caleb was saying, don't use fear as an excuse to resist God's grace. God was freely giving Israel this land, but Israel was resisting the gift out of fear. And Caleb says that this is rebellion against God. You ever thought about it that way? That fear is rebellion against God. Second, second, I want you to see that it tells us why fear is rebellion against God. Fear is rebellion against God because you either, in your fear, you are either giving more weight to what you stand to lose than what you stand to gain, or you trust in the created more than the creator. Now, I want to go back for those listening to the podcast, and I want to say it again. Uh, the reason the fear is rebellion, rebellion against God is because in fear you are either giving more weight to what you stand to lose, or at least what you think you stand to lose, than what you stand to gain, and or you trust in the created more than the creator. And in Israel's case, it's both, isn't it? Clearly, they give more weight to the security that they think they stand to lose than the land that they stand to gain. You can hear it in their complaint. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Their focus, their attention is about what what they think they're going to lose more than what they're going to gain. But they also trust in the created more than the creator when they say we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. What's the implication? The implication is if we were bigger, stronger, faster, we could take them, but we're not. And see, that's trust in the created rather than the Creator. And you see, when you're afraid of something, when you use it as an excuse, when you're afraid of something, either of, because of what you perceive that you stand to lose or, or when you're afraid of a challenge that seems too big, what you're really saying is this, God isn't as consequential as what I'm about to lose. Or maybe you're saying, this is more than God can handle. This is more important than God. This is bigger than God. 
And see, that's rebellion against God because it's a rejection of who he says he is. It's a rejection of his glory, a rejection of his greatness, his value, his goodness. I'll just put it like this. If fear is preventing you from responding to God's grace by being pathologically generous, you are pathologically out of touch with reality. (laughs) If fear is preventing you from responding to God's grace with pathological generosity, you are pathologically out of touch with reality. What you stand to gain from generosity is far greater than what you think you're going to lose. And you see, this is what Caleb was trying to tell these people. He's trying to say, he's trying to say, let's go, people. This is a land of incredible blessing. Let's not forfeit it because we're afraid. We will devour them. God is on our side. He's not going to let us down. He promised us this land. It's like, you're crazy if we don't go forward. You're nuts. Don't resist God's grace. (laughs) But, but, many of you probably know the end of the story. They allow themselves to be paralyzed by fear. And this whole generation of Israel, apart from Joshua and Caleb, this whole generation of Israel, will spend the rest of their lives languishing in the desert with their promised land in sight, but just beyond their reach. And the sad thing is that that is where the majority of God's people spend their lives. Just on the verge of incredible blessing, but languishing in the desert of if only. If only I would have gotten out of my comfort zone. If only I wouldn't have resisted God's grace. If only I hadn't let fear control me. It's the desert of if only. I find this story to be a fascinating study in contrasts. Do you? I just think it's fascinating. On the one hand, you have a majority of people who can't disown their destiny fast enough. And on the other hand, you've got a small minority who are ready to trust in the Lord and do some giant slaying. How do you account for the difference? Why are the Caleb's and the Joshua's of the world so different? Like there's not not a whole lot of them. But why are the Joshua's and the Caleb's of the world so different? There are Joshua's and Caleb's in here in this room. What makes them so different from the rest? Like the man that I was uh, telling you about earlier who wanted to give 90% of his income to the Lord. What makes those people so different? Well, a couple clues here in the text. First, Caleb's and, and Joshua's are willing to live beyond their own limitations. Now, I'm not talking about living beyond their financial limits. That's not what I'm saying. But living beyond their own physical limitations. Sure, we're grasshoppers compared to them, but we'll take them. I love that attitude, don't you? Yeah, we're grasshoppers. We're going to take them anyway, though. They were willing to go beyond 
their physical limitations, beyond the point of no return, beyond their comfort zone, and, and, and trust God with the results. But when we do that, when we go beyond the point of no return, beyond our own limits of comfort and security, life is never the same. Again, God uses it to enlarge us personally, to make us more than our limits would ever allow us to be more courageous, more influential free of the things that enslave us and hold us back from becoming the people that we want to be and that God wants us to be. Yeah. Yeah, Joshua's and Caleb's, they, they lived beyond the, their own limitations, their own, like, comfort zone. Second, Caleb's and Joshua's, uh, they're the kind of people who are willing to act on God's promises. Like they're willing to act on God's promises. This is the essence of life-changing faith, isn't it? Not just saying, I intellectually believe something, but acting on that belief. For them, it was the willingness to fight the giants in the land because God had promised to give them the land. We will devour them, they, they, they said. For you, it's, it's acting on God's promises that he will he'll provide for you. Uh, there's this part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking to the fear which holds so many people back from the kind of generosity that, that they would like to display. And I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but Jesus says to these people, he asks them, why are you so anxious? You know, like, why are you so fearful? Why are you so anxious about food? Why are you so anxious about your clothing? Why are you so anxious about these things? Don't you realize God takes care of the birds and he, and he takes care of the flowers of the fields? And you're way more valuable than they are. Won't he much more clothe you? He, he's saying, you're out of touch with reality if you think that you can outgive the God who owns everything. You're pathologically out of touch with reality if you think you can do that. You see, th this is the thing about the Joshua's and the Caleb's of the world. Like, they're willing to act on God's promises. That's a promise. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. You can't outgive me. It's a promise. But, you know, here's the thing that's, that, that, that I find myself asking is why. why. Why were Joshua and Caleb in this passage willing to live beyond their limitations? Why were they so willing to act on God's promises? And the reason is this, that uh, Joshua's and Caleb's believe that God is for them. They believe that God is for them. And I wonder if you believe that, that God is for you. <laughs> Caleb says, their protection's gone, but the Lord's with us. Uh, don't be afraid of them. Why were they so convinced that God was for them? Well, if you were to look down a few verses in chapter 14, uh, God refers twice in, those, in the following verses to the fact that he had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt miraculously miraculously. And what he's saying is, look at what I did to rescue you as a nation from Egypt. Look at all the miracles I did. How could you think that I would do all of that to save you just to let you down when you decide to obey me and go into the land? Why would you think I'd let you down now? 
Remember what a miracle your salvation is. And see, that's why Caleb and Joshua believed God was for them. Because they remembered how miraculous their salvation was. Do you believe God is for you? See, the, the whole story of God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egypt was pointing to the miracle that God would do for us in Christ's death and resurrection. He liberated us from slavery to sin through the sacrifice of his firstborn son and then miraculously raised him from the dead. If he would do all that for you when you were still his enemy, why would he forsake you when you're his friend? Would you decide to trust him completely with your money? Why would he do that? This is the point the Apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Just look at the cross. Like how can you, how can you look at the cross and think God isn't for you? The cross is the supreme demonstration of the fact that God is for you and that you can't outgive God. And that's it. It's the cross. And this is where this little series on money ends. As every series, as every sermon that we do here at City Church ends, it ends at the cross of Christ. Look at the cross. Those of you who, man, you feel this thing welling up in you that you just want to, like you, you, you feel yourself getting caught up in the grace of God and wanting to bless people, and, and yet you're fearful just... Just look at the cross. You can't outgive God. You can't. I hope you've noticed that conspicuously absent from this series on money has been any talk about some specific percentage of money that you should be giving away. That's because I don't believe the New Testament teaches that. You should be, I don't think it teaches that you should be giving some specific percentage of money plus. Um, should isn't a powerful motivator. There's no motivator more powerful than the grace of God in Christ. Nope. I would just say this. Here's my only direction to you. Aim to be pathologically generous, whatever pathologically generous means to you at this moment in your life. And every year, set the bar a little higher. Just try to grow a little, year, a little every year. Challenge every year. Just challenge yourself. See what God does. And I, and I want to say to you, I, I, you know, do I think City Church is a great place for you to be generous to? Yes. Um, uh, we, we, we try to be the very best stewards of the resources that, that you contribute to this church. And, and uh, we want to, you see our vision, we, we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, I think City Church is a great place for you to be generous to. But 
There are other great organizations locally and nationally that you can be generous to. Whatever you do, wherever you choose to be generous, get caught up in that roaring, rushing, overflowing river of desire to bless others that comes from experiencing the free grace of God in Christ. And you will never, ever, ever regret it. Bow your heads with me, if you would. Lord Jesus, a series on money, it's always a sensitive subject. Uh, I thank you for the reception that uh, people have given this series. I thank you for the generosity of the people of City Church. But I know in my own heart that there is this uh, increasing, um, as I experience the grace of God deeper and deeper and deeper, there is this increasing desire to be more and more generous. And yet, I know that, that fear for me is a player. And it, it, it's, it shuts down some of what, what you want to do in me and through me and, and things that I genuinely want to do in response to your grace. And um, I suspect that's true for many of us here. I, I pray, Lord, that you would turn us into Caleb's and Joshua's. Uh, and through the, just through the power of your word, just remind us today that you're faithful, good, you're generous, and that you're for us. And the cross is the perfect demonstration of that and the ultimate demonstration of that. And it is in Christ's name that we pray.